Well, some bad news uh, for folks in the dairy community here in Washington State. Actually, mixed, mixed news. Some good, some bad. Uh, from some stuff that's been happening in the courts. Something that we haven't talked about for a while here on the program. Uh, this has to do with the regulations the state has for, as they're called, confined animal feeding operations or CAFOs. And there's been numerous lengthy, expensive, controversial legal battles over these regulations, these permits, uh, and this latest ruling on some appeals from a judge uh, has some not-so-good things for the future of dairy farming in Washington State. And certainly concerned about that, um, pleased with some of the positive outcomes. There are a lot of facets to this. It gets complicated fast, but we're going to try to make it simple this morning for you if we at all can just to let you know what's going on in the background for dairy farms and the things that they're facing. Welcome back to the Farming Show, by the way. I'm Dylan Honkoop here on KGMI. I'm glad to have you with us this Saturday morning and joining me right now from the Washington State Dairy Federation, their executive director, Dan Wood. Dan, welcome to the program. So so talk about this. What, what's with this whole, I mean, we say CAFO, this CAFO thing. It's a CAFO permit, right, which defines kind of the state's regulations for dairies over a given size? Right. So a CAFO is a uh, concentrated animal feeding operation. And so if you, you could voluntarily get a CAFO permit, they're administered through the Department of Ecology. You can get a state-only permit for groundwater, or you could get a state and federal uh, combined uh, CAFO permit uh, dealing with surface water and groundwater. And so it, it regulates um, practices on, in this case, on the dairy farm. There are other animal operations that could yeah. get a CAFO permit. And the, the regulations that were adopted by Ecology uh, said that if you have uh, a certain amount of discharges of dairy nutrients, then you must get a CAFO permit. Some people were mandated into it from a discharge. Uh, some people were uh, uh, into it on a voluntary basis uh, just because they wanted to have that degree of, of certainty. And if they mm. did have a discharge, then the remedy was under the permit and not in the courts. Right. And so this mixed ruling we just had from the state court of appeals, I think, is going to diminish the amount of uh, interest in voluntarily seeking the uh, CAFO permit. So, so what, what if you don't do this, then then basically the way you're describing it is if there is a problem, if something happens, then you're facing probably a much bigger, a much more costly legal battle than um, already kind of being under the auspices of the state and or federal permits. Yeah, you could have bigger fines and, um, for your discharge and you could then be mandated into getting a CAFO permit. So this is uh, for the federal version of the permit. This is delegated authority from the EPA, and then ec Ecology administers that, and then they've got you know state authority on groundwater that the feds don't have. The feds have surface water uh, authority. And so if you have runoff and, and your manure um, accidentally goes into, you know, a creek or a ditch, it, it might not even reach actual water, uh, but it could mm. be called a discharge if it had the potential to reach mm actual water. So 
it gets convoluted and uh, regulatory uh, very quickly on this this whole thing. And so uh, this the permits um, have a, a, a five-year lifespan, and then ecology goes into rulemaking for the next iteration of the permit. So we are in the beginnings of rulemaking for the next iteration of the permit already, and that started even before the State Court of Appeals issued this ruling you know, a little over a week. So a even week as the legal appeals for the last one are, sh- are still shaking out, they're working on the next one, it sounds like perpetual uh, court uh, battles back and forth between who gets what they want. Yeah, and, you know, uh, the, when the activists don't get everything, they sue. Um, Department of Ecology. We actually, so the, the the initial lawsuit went through the State Pollution Control Hearings Board. They acted as the Superior Court, and then from there it was appealed to the Court of Appeals, and that the Court of Appeals is the court that just ruled. So here's the mixed bag. So there's some really good news uh, in the package of rulings or what they ruled or what they didn't rule on. We had some good news. And then we had some surprises and mystery uh, mixed in there. And then we had some just uh, some negative things that we're going to have to figure out how to work through. So the the first uh, good news item, and this is largely a Western Washington uh, issue, is that in our appeal, in the Dairy Federation's appeal in front of the Pollution Control Hearings Board, Uh, Ecology uh, was told to back off on changing how they measure a lagoon liner. And so the NRCS, uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service, uh, are the the national experts as part of the U.S. Department of Agriculture with regard to lagoon science and best practices. So they say that you have to have two feet of separation between the bottom of the lagoon and the high ground watermark. And their illustration shows that the bottom of the lagoon is the inside of the liner. So if you basically picture a bowl, Hmm. you know, you pour milk into a bowl. And as far down as the milk goes is the lagoon. And then the ceramic in the bowl is the liner. Okay. Which in the case of a manure storage facility, a manure lagoon is a specific type of clay soil that's compacted in a way to create a seal. Yes, and and NRCS testified that 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 um, you have the uh, ten to the minus six of uh, permeation, which is exceptionally tiny, uh, and then it goes to ten to the minus seventh over time as it seals and compacts. And so it's the the clay liners are remarkably effective, and um, so. But by what, me- measuring it from the inside versus the outside. Then it doesn't matter how thick your your exactly. liner is, you're going to get you, penalized for being too close to groundwater, even though you might be very far away from it with the manure that's being stored. Sure. So Ecology pulled this little sleight of hand in there when they issued the permit language uh, and said that you have to have that two feet of separation from the, the uh, water table. As measured, this is what they added in, as measured from the outside of the lagoon liner. So you could have a four-foot thick liner. You could have a 400-foot thick liner. Nobody does. Um, but, you know, it, it could be eight feet thick. And you're still going to measure two feet down from that lagoon liner. And so it was adding that phrase, as measured from the outside of the lagoon liner. That was the sleight of hand. 
And we challenged that, and the Pollution Control Hearings Board ruled in our favor and said, NRCS has the expertise, and you will go with the NRCS standards. So that victory remains. The other victory, and this was in the Court of Appeals ruling, is they said that ACART, which stands for you know, A-K-A-R-T, All Known and Reasonable Technologies. Got to love those government acronyms. Well, they've added a few other words that didn't get into the acronym, but <laughs> so ACART, all known and reasonable technology, has to be utilized. But they said that, and and actually, in this case, the Court of Appeals agreed with Department of Ecology that the word reasonable is as important as known and as technology in ACART. Right? They're all part of the same standard. And so you can consider cost effectiveness. Therefore, a double synthetic liner that the activists wanted in the rule uh, is not reasonable technology because it, it it costs too much for the benefit achieved. Yeah. And what, so that, what benefit does it achieve over the, the clay liner that the NRCS um, uh, says it meets you know standards? Well, I think it depends on who you ask. I mean, some the the scientists that are hired by the environmental activists would argue that it is um, a better containment. Um, but the scientists who actually deal with lagoons and, and how they're managed say uh, it could be catastrophic. If you are in with your equipment and you're agitating the lagoon and you nick that liner, then you're creating a, a preferential pathway. Uh, you know, in essence, um, you're poking, a, you know, instead of a ceramic bowl, <laughs> let's say we have a plastic bowl. Mm-hmm. And we we crack it and, you know, the liquid's going to go through that crack as a preferential pathway. So there, and, there's the likelihood that a, a double synthetic <coughs> liner, which I think to the uninitiated sounds like, well, yeah, that sounds pretty heavy duty. That's got to be the way to go. It may not even be as protective uh, of groundwater or anything else than no, and the you, current standard of the it. clay liner. Yeah, and if you disturb that synthetic liner, it won't seal back up like the clay liner will. Mm. That's why you have so many clay liners, uh, because it seals. You know, it's basically a very thick, uh, you know, clay mud um, that um, that holds um, the effluent that's in it. And, um, you know, there's lots of science. Do they... Do they seep a little bit? Yes, they do. But there's also the nitrification and denitrification that happens in that environment that causes the the nitrogen to convert to a different form and it, you know, gases back up. And so the activists argued that, well, seepage is the same as a leak and it's just not. Mm. You know, um, you know, it'd be, you know, sometimes you have a container of water and you have a little bit of sweat on the outside of the water. It doesn't mean you're leaking water, yeah, right? Uh, and people probably seen that on the toilets in their house, mm-hmm. right? It depends on what's going on inside, on how much uh, sweat and condensation you have on the outside. So and thankfully, so the, act- the court agreed that that it makes yeah. sense to go with the clay liners. Yeah. So they said it is not reasonable for ecology to require a double synthetic liner, and in fact, ecology was not requiring that. So ecology defended that provision of their permit, and they won. So those are the really remarkable things that I think we've really advanced good science and and a guard against unreasonable standards. Uh, so being legally active, legally involved yeah. uh, paid off in that regard. 
the the troubling aspects of of this is the court ruled and i'm not sure if they are correct uh, but this is what they said is the law so i think we have to figure out a way to deal with this that each individual permit has to have a hearing as opposed to a programmatic hearing like ecology wanted to do so anybody that gets one of these cafo permits would have to go through a likely very ugly court process is what you're saying Right. So what Ecology said was, look, the standards are in the permit. We'll have a hearing on the standards and whether or not those are good policies. (laughs) What the court said was, well, Dylan, if you have a CAFO permit, we're going to have a hearing on your CAFO permit. And if Dan has a CAFO permit, we'll have a hearing on Dan's CAFO permit. That means there are dozens of opportunities now for lawsuits, even though it's the same standard in every permit. So we're going to review that and find out... (laughs) You know, is is there a way to address that or is it, you know, this is the way they do it in Oregon, right? There's a there's a hearing on each CAFO permit down there, except for the very small CAFOs. So basically, if you've got more than a couple of hundred uh, cows, then it looks like the Court of Appeals says you'll have to have a permit permit on that individually. I think that's going to suppress the volunteer um, involvement with CAFO permits. I think people just wait to see if they get mandated. Well, and it sounds the, like a cash cow for the litigation industry, the lawyers who make huge money off of these cases, constantly asking for this, that, and the other thing. This is just yeah. going to be more court fees for them. So it's not surprising that uh, those kinds of folks would support this. Uh, again, we're talking with Dan Wood, Washington State Dairy Federation. Just a couple of minutes left. Talk about some of the other uh, unfortunate downsides of this recent ruling. Yeah, there are three other aspects. I'll just cover them quickly. One of them is um, the the court upheld the application of TSUM 200 to Eastern Washington. And we gave them science in the rural developing process. We gave them a link directly to the science that said that that was developed for a wet climate like British Columbia, Western Washington, England. And that Uh, that TSUM 200, that's the tool that's used to determine when manure can be applied how early in the year i guess i should say manure can be applied to fields yeah so you basically take the beginning of the year and when you get 200 heat units so that's you know a degree above freezing so you know 33 degrees would be in fahrenheit would be well they they measure it in celsius but you know if you want to think in fahrenheit if it's 33 degrees roughly you've got a heat unit or you know whatever the celsius conversion is two point something and um, and so once you reach 200 units above freezing accumulatively, then you could apply um, the nutrients. Well, that that just doesn't work for the arid climate in eastern Washington. It was never designed for that. So really what we have to do is continue to give the Ph.D. level science uh, to ecology, but explain it to them in second grade terms on what it actually says. Mm. We gave them the science before. I can't tell you if they read it. I can't tell you if they understood it or hopefully they weren't just trying to play games. But we've got to go back and still educate them with the research, but explain to them what it actually says. Because there were things they didn't understand, um, you know, clearly. And there were some aha moments for them on the rulemaking on this. The, the, the two mystifying things are this. Number one, the court ruled that ecology has to consider climate change. Uh, and Consider climate change. Well, what, yeah, what does that mean? I thought about it, and so I considered well, it. So we'll take the opportunity to tell them, for example, if you compare 
the 10 years from 2007 to 17, it took 30% less water, 21% less land, and um, there was a 19% smaller carbon footprint um, for that same gallon of milk. In what, so, what amount of time was the, were those improvements made? Since 2007 when? compared to 17. So, so you 10 know, that, years only. Yeah. And I mean, that's a remarkable, um, um, uh, advantageous position, uh, uh, a remarkable change uh, for producing that gallon of milk, you know, to, to show what, what is dairy actually doing. And we've got the net zero program that was designed nationally that by 2050, the goal is to get to uh, carbon neutral uh, for dairy. So I think we've got a remarkable story to tell in creating clean energy. Uh, we have some dairies with a negative carbon footprint already in Washington State. So if they, we're glad to help them consider climate change and how dairies help um, that effort. Uh, we just don't know exactly w w when is enough enough. Uh, how, how much consideration? How do you document that? We're going to have to work through that yeah. with ecology, but we're glad to tell that story. Um, the other, uh, thing that they said is there has to be, uh, groundwater and surface water monitoring. Ecology argued that that was a look back and, um, you know, it might be that you had a different crop or it was uh, someone else's dairy operation or there were different practices that are no longer used. And so that, that monitoring tells you what happened, but doesn't tell you what's happening today. And so we'll have to work with ecology to find out what's reasonable. And again, I think we're going to go back to that ACART argument. What is the reasonable technology for groundwater monitoring? And so we've got some work to do to help ecology meet that interpretation of the court. Uh, I thought they had a reasonable approach in the permit. The court uh, agreed with the activists that um, they needed to do that monitoring. So there, it's really a mixed bag on the ruling, yeah. uh, but there are some remarkably uh, good news items in that ruling. There are some mysteries like the groundwater monitoring, surface water monitoring, considering climate change. And then are, there are just some things that are going to be more expensive, like individual permit hearings. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's good that we were fighting in the courts uh, because I think we did um, advance things towards a more uh, reasonable cost and reasonable regulation. We didn't get everything we were fighting for. Um, the activists didn't get everything they were fighting yeah. for. Neither did ecology. Yeah. Dan Wood, executive director of the Washington State Dairy Federation, with us this morning here on The Farming Show, giving us the lowdown of what happened in the courts as the courts rule on manure and animals and concentrated animal feeding operations and the regulations and permits that govern uh, what happens on those. Uh, Dan, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. And much more importantly, thank you for all of the work that you're doing uh, day in, week in, week out, month in, and year around, even when you know other things may be on the front burner, to uh, keep an eye on these things and, and make sure that uh, the future of farming in, in this state is protected. Appreciate it. Thanks for letting me update people.